0: ancient techniques have been available for you know thousands of years and they've been very very effective and then we've started to understand science of atoms and molecules and that took us away we said oh, this is incredible look what we can do and we've went away over to the one side of all the things we can do and then we've, we're suddenly realizing that that isn't able to help everyone and there's a lot of things that would actually be a lot of conditions in people that would be better served with something that we've left behind.
1: I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Hamilton, author of a number of books on healing, including How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body, and his latest book, Why Woo Woo Works. David Hamilton's research was originally inspired by his early work in the pharmaceutical industry, where he was an organic chemist working on heart disease and cancer drugs. His research has delivered answers tied to our neurons, neural transmitters, and neural pathways, effectively our internal pharmacy, which includes our own personal sources of dopamine, serotonin, opioids, and cannabinoids. David has since spent his career sharing research on tools that we can all use to help our bodies get, be, or stay well. I was turned on to David's work by a friend who recommended his book, How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body. I am incredibly excited to talk with him today and share with you what I learned about the healer that resides in each of us. David, it's so nice to have you on today. Thank you very much. I'm very excited about this conversation.
0: Oh, well, thank you. And thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm very excited uh, also.
1: So maybe you could start just a little bit by talking about where you started in the pharmaceutical industry and how you ended up in the space that you're in today.
0: Well, I started out as what's called an organic chemist. Now, that has nothing to do with organic food, unfortunately. So an organic (laughs) chemist is like an adult who plays with Lego blocks, you know, those plastic or wooden coloured blocks that children use. So an organic chemist does exactly the same thing, but instead of a child's green block is my carbon and a child's blue block is my nitrogen and their yellow block is my my oxygen but the idea is the same and instead of using these blocks to assemble you know buildings and rocket ships an organic chemist uses you know these are atomic building blocks instead of plastic building blocks and so we assemble molecules and ultimately that's a fancy name for medicines uh, after my phd i spent 4 years in R&D building medicines mostly for cardiovascular disease but also for for cancer and that is really what introduced me formally to this world that many people refer to as as woo-woo because I became fascinated by the placebo effect. When you look at the results of clinical trials you can't ignore the fact that a number of people make improvements on placebo but at the time The conventional wisdom, even among my colleagues, was that it's all in the mind. People are not getting better, they just think they're getting better. And, And it was really just dismissed, not unkindly, really, but just because no one really thought about it because it was just an assumption that your mind can't possibly have an effect on the body. So I started researching it because I had an interest already. You see, I've got three sisters. And after my youngest of three sisters was born, my mum had postpartum depression. And I was desperate to help her. And I remember finding a book in the school library called The Magic Power of Your Mind and giving it to my mum. And, you know, it didn't cure her. It didn't cure depression in a day, but it taught her things like meditation and affirmations, things that we've always called thought of as woo-woo stuff that helped her to navigate a course through some really difficult days and it really helped. So as I was growing up as a child and then into my teenage years, my mum and I often talked about the power of the mind. So I had a fascination already because I had witnessed it in my mum having a really phenomenally positive effect. So I decided in the pharmaceutical industry to have a little mini project of my own where I would research the placebo effect and try to understand how it worked. And it turns out what actually happens. When a person believes something, that belief causes the brain to produce whatever it needs to produce to deliver what the person believes, obviously within reason. But for example, Let's say people who have pain somewhere in their body. And so the person takes a placebo, but they believe that it's a real medicine. So their brain produces what it needs to produce to eradicate that pain. So the brain produces its own painkillers. So the brain has its own versions of morphine. So morphine is an opiate. So the brain has its own opiates and they're called endogenous opiates and that really means they're endogenous to the to the brain they belong to you they come from within yourself. And so when a person believes that this tablet will get rid of my pain then it's a real physical drop in pain because the belief produces mor- its own the brain's own morphine and it's the brain's own morphine that delivers the reduction in pain. So it's not just the placebo effect is all in the mind. There is a real physical effect. There is a real chemical, biological, physical effect in the brain and body, but it's guided by what the person believes. And that is, for me, that was amazing. When I worked as an R&D scientist, learning that, I thought, wow, how useful would that sort of insight and knowledge be. So I became so passionate about that. that After four years in the industry, I thought, well, there's plenty of organic chemists doing the job that I'm doing, but there's not (laughs) enough people perhaps helping people to understand this bridge between the mind and the body in ways that might be helpful for their mental and their physical health. So I decided to resign from the industry and, and start writing.
1: As an organic chemist, you must have understood the brain pretty well. And so this, did it seem like magic initially how, you know, patients who were given the placebo as opposed to the drug that was being tested against the placebo, what was happening inside the brain? Yeah, for me, it was fascinating
0: because I I had such an interest. I wanted to understand what is the mechanism, you know, what happens inside the brain, what happens inside your body? When you believe something, and, and it is it's a completely inert pill. And so, what I, my mini project that I created for myself was to understand exactly what happens. It's that belief or expectation, like I'm taking this tablet, I'm now expecting the pain to disappear. And that power. That feeling, that that emotive feeling that you have seems to be like a little force, a little trigger that turns on a little tap or pushes something in the brain that releases specifically into the brain in the specific area of the brain that corresponds to the location in the body where the pain is. I mean, for example, uh, research has shown that if a person has pain in that hand and that hand and they were given a placebo, let's say a cream, and this, was do- this research was done by Fabrizio Benedetti in the University of Turin. Uh, and they, they gave people an injection of really the substance that makes chilli peppers burn, so capsaicin. And they were going to get an injection into the hands or, or into the feet. But prior to the injection, they would have a supposed local anaesthetic applied to either that hand or that hand. But it was really a, a moisturising cream but they believed that it was a local anaesthetic. And amazingly, if they had the placebo local anaesthetic rubbed on, say, the left hand, and then the the injection of chili was into the left hand and the right hand, the pain was through the roof, 10 out of 10 on the right hand, but significantly reduced sometimes to zero in the left hand. And and so placebo effect was specific. And what happened in the brain this natural morphine that gets produced in the brain didn't just get produced all over the brain, but it was guided, it get produced specifically in the location of the brain that related to the left hand. And that's how specific your mind is. So wherever your mind is focused, that seems to be how that guides what happens in the body, that guides the production of substances in the brain that almost targets that particular location in the body. And I found that, Absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, I knew there was something seemingly phenomenally, like you might even call magic going on. I, I was I knew there was something amazing, but I didn't really know what I was going to find when I first started researching it. And that for me was just absolutely mind-blowing.
1: And then that work, or maybe in conjunction with that work, you were also looking at things like visualization. And you talk in, I think it's the the book, How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body, about Weakening certain neural ba- pathways that are creating negativity and strengthening neural pathways that promote positivity and health. Can you talk a little bit about why that works and how that works?
0: Yeah, well, see, I, I had an interest in visualization because I, I was an athletics coach while I worked as an r and d scientist. So I became interested in visualization for that reason to really help athletes because I had read about it and and looked into the science of what happens in the brain. And I thought, isn't that absolutely incredible? You know, if you visualise something, it really can enhance your physical performance. And, And what happens is if you do any repetitive movement, so for example, if I had to take my finger and just repetitively bend that finger over and over again, hundreds of times, then if you look at the brain, then what you would see in the region of the brain connected to that finger, it would start to grow like a muscle. And the phenomena is called neuroplasticity. And what it means is the brain isn't this hardwired lump of matter, but it's something that's continually growing and changing in response to our life experiences, but also in response to how we move and also in response to what we think and what we imagine. And, And some of this amazing research was done at Harvard, where Alvaro Pascal León got a group of volunteers to play a sequence of five notes on a piano, like just really with each of their fingers up and down a scale. So plunk, 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 up and down a scale for two hours on five consecutive days. Now, it's not two hours straight. That's really tiring. So you do it, you plunk for a minute, you rest for a minute, you plunk for a minute, you rest for a minute, that sort of idea. But for two hours and five days. And what they found is the region of the brain connected to the finger muscles due to that repetition had actually grown substantially like a muscle. But a separate group of people, instead of playing the notes with their fingers, they closed their eyes, put their hands flat on the table and played the notes in their mind. It's called kinesthetic imagery. So what you do is you imagine what that would be like as if you really were moving. So you imagine the what the physical sensations would be like if you were actually Plunking the notes, plunk, 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 plunk with your fingers, what that would look like if you were looking at your hand, what it would feel like. And they also did that for the two hours on the five consecutive days. And incredibly, the same region of their brain had changed. And what was amazing about it is it changed to the same extent as those who'd actually played the notes with their fingers. And for that particular study, it was it demonstrated that the brain really wasn't making a distinction between whether someone was actually moving their fingers or whether they were imagining moving the fingers. And what was also interesting is they left them over the weekend and then brought them back again on the Monday. And some of these regions that previously built had begun to shrink down again. And it's that concept of use it or lose it. It's like if you're training to be an athlete and you use a muscle consistently, then the muscle grows. But if you stop using it, then it begins to atrophy. And something very similar happens in the brain. We build these neural connections, but we also lose them. One of the most remarkable things about that is that allows us to change our patterns and change our thinking and our beliefs. Because if we've had a lifetime of thinking in one way and there's pathways in the brain built up around that, and then you learn something new and start thinking in a new way. Then you start building connections and neural pathways for this new way of thinking. And all, of, all the connections and many of the connections you previously built up begin to shrink down again. And it's like a, a good analogy is imagine you're, you'd like to walk across a cornfield and there's a path through the field that's already been walked and it's already worn. And you think, well, that's the path I've always gone before. I would like now to walk a different path. So it's hard work at first because you've not done it before and you have to break down the corn. But after the first couple of times, you've now made a path through that. And in time, the more you walk that path, the more well-defined that path becomes. But if you look at the old path, it's began to overgrow because you're not feeding it anymore. You're not walking that path. So the beauty of all this is it allows us to use things like techniques like visualization to have positive impacts on how we do things in our lives, but also positive impacts on even the way the body functions in particular ways.
1: So talk to me a little bit then about what the impetus was to write your latest book, Why Woo Woo Works. Research is catching up. We now understand the notion of neuroplasticity. You're just describing it. We are starting to understand epigenetics and that we can actually influence which genes get turned on and turned off because we do certain things. And so did, when you wrote this book, do you feel like there's enough science now and enough science ahead of us, like there's momentum in the space that you can actually put something in writing, take a stance that, you know, these things that we considered to be alternative and a little bit outside of the normal bounds of Western medicine, there's a reason that they work. It, tell me a little bit, why, why did you decide that the moment was now to write this book?
0: One of my impetuses for, for the book was there has been a, all this evidence that has existed for a long time, but some things we refer to things as woo-woo, not because they actually are woo-woo, but only because we don't realise that there's solid science available for it. And I had come across a lot of this really well, well carried out pieces of research, that most people just don't know about. And I thought, well, I'm going to gather all, all that together. And so I, I just gathered it all together. And and it was fascinating for me because I tested it out in some of my friends about stuff. They go, oh, that's a lot of woo-woo. And they used some even more colourful terms after a couple of glasses of wine or a beer or two. And, and it was enlightening for them when I would say, you know, it just sounds that way to you because you've never heard of any research, but once you actually put a research paper in front and say, look at that. And it's like, wow, I remember doing that with one of my friends say, when I told them that I had trained, I'd went through Reiki training a number of years ago and, and he thought, oh, I thought you were a serious scientist. And I thought, oh, you know, there's randomised controlled trials and meta-analysis, you know, statistical analysis of randomised controlled trials on Reiki, that hands, well-known hands-on healing technique that show that it's very effective. For reducing pain and improving the symptoms of anxiety and depression and pain over a number of different mental and physical conditions. So, there's really solid research, you know, peer reviewed, evidence based research in this sort of thing. And, and that applies to a lot of alternative practices. So, I, I thought, well, I think it's time to, as I say, make a stance and bring some of this stuff out and say, you know, I'm not trying to convince anyone. I'm just saying, take a look at it. And and I think you'll probably agree that there is room in this world for a fusion. Some sort of, you know, for, yeah. you know, take the best of the West and the best of all the rest and bring them together. For some people, maybe they need more of this and less of that. But for a great many other conditions, perhaps they need more of the other and less of the first. But somewhere In the middle, some sort of fusion that maybe varies from person to person, depending on the condition, but some sort of fusion between the two. And I was really driven by trying to show that maybe that is a future that would be very in the best interest of of most people, that represents this coming together of worlds that don't really need to be separate at all.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. When I was doing that company, which was eventually sold to a company called MindBody out on the West Coast, as I was building the company, I talked to, you know, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of practitioners, but also lots of patients. And between the two of them, there were so many incredible stories that it made me sort of go back and rethink things that had happened to me. I was a college athlete, and whenever we would bring in a sports psychiatrist who would lead us through meditations before games, we always played better. You know, we kind of liked that we always played better, but I never really thought about what, you know, what was actually happening there. When I delivered our first child, I lost about a third of my blood in the delivery, and I went to an acupuncturist. A friend of mine, I'd never had any really anything horrible happened to me. And so a friend of mine who was Chinese said, you should go to this acupuncturist. And he gave me some Chinese herbs that most Chinese women take after birth to just kind of fortify their blood and build things back. But my Obi Joanne had never heard of such a thing. And it just kind of befuddled me that there was no integration of the two things. I'm wondering about your journey must have you talking to people all the time about things stories that they have that and ways that what you've noticed has worked for them what is one of your favorite stories what i find
0: particularly inspiring is people who have people have had cancer i I come across a lot of people who've used visualization for cancer not instead of medical advice but in addition to to what they're doing where they visualize maybe their immune system like piranha fish or pac-men destroying cancer cells And I've spoken over the years in a number of cancer centres really that tend to draw people who are going through their mainstream treatment, but they want something else as well. So they go to the centres for things like Reiki and acupuncture and massage and other other kind of things. And I would sometimes run a class in the mind-body connection and teach some visualisation techniques. And I've come across a number of people who've used visualisation of their immune system or even visualising the medicines that they were taking doing that kind of job. And one of my favourite themes, I guess, because it's not just one person, this is a theme that happens, is as these men and women are visualising very specifically, they seem to have less side effects than everyone else who's not using the visualisation. Now, that's not a peer-reviewed study, that's just something that I've picked up a repetitive theme. And, you know, I, w- I found some research when I was writing Why Woo Works about an actual randomised control trial. Women with breast cancer going through radiotherapy, chemo- surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, uh, half of whom, in addition to that treatment, also used visualisation. And their immune response was significantly better and longer lasting against the cancer than those who didn't do the visualization. So here you had visualization was doing something very powerful and specific to the immune system that was helping it to rid the body of this condition.
1: I don't know if you think about this at all, and maybe it was also one of the reasons you wrote your book, but it's too bad, I think, for healthcare that we ended up in this model of evidence-based medicine to the exclusion of everything else. These techniques are so ancient, right? And used for so many years. And now we you know, pass them down through books like yours and through really word of mouth and through practitioners who are working kind of outside of the standard of care sort of models. Do you run into now doctors who are more open to adopting some of these practices?
0: We've, well for the ancient techniques have been available for, you know, thousands of years and they've been very, very effective. And then we've started to understand science of atoms and molecules. And that took us away. We said, oh, this is incredible. Look what we can do. And we've went way over to the one side of all the things we can do. And then we've, we're suddenly realising that that isn't able to help everyone. And there's a lot of things that would actually be, a lot of conditions in people that would be better served with something that we've left behind. So I think a lot of People in medicine themselves are also realising there's a place for this, absolutely, 100%. But there's also a place for this as well. And we're beginning to come back a little bit and re-embrace some of the ancient techniques and, and, and versions, modern versions of the ancient techniques. And we're embracing them because it makes sense. Because we hear so many patients saying... You know, this stuff worked for me. In fact, you know, a, a large survey of the top teaching, academic teaching hospitals in, in the US asked why it is that they have large, kind of almost spa-like facilities that, that treat people with alternative modalities. 85% of them, I believe, was the figure said it was patient demand. So there's enough people who've had the experience that this really worked for me, and or has worked for me in the past, and it's also worked for my, my mother, or my father, or my sister, or my or my best friend. Uh, so I would like to try it as well. Thank you very much. And I think there's a, there's a groundswell of people, and and so I've I've come across more so now than maybe ten years ago. Doctors, physicians, GPs as we call them in in the UK, uh, and researchers who used to be very, oh, come on, that, that's a lot of woo-woo, to say, this is incredible. In fact, I, I, I have a few friends who, in the UK, we call them lifestyle medicine practitioners. And what that means is, in addition to prescribing their main medicines as a family doctor, sometimes, for some conditions, the first thing they do is say, let's work together for a month or so with a lifestyle intervention. And let's see if changing your life will work on your stress, will work on your diet first and foremost, will work on your stress, your sleep habits, and we'll see if we can make a lifestyle intervention. If that works, then we won't have to go down the mainstream medicine route. And for a large number of conditions, you know, I think some doctors will say it's about 75%. That would actually be the best route forward for a lot of, you know, non-life-threatening things. A lifestyle intervention first might actually reduce the need for some or all of the prescribed medicine and surely that's got to be a a better healthier way forward for everyone.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think the combination of both strategies is going to give us the most power in terms of healthcare and our current healthcare model on its own it's very hard to fight against all of the toxins in our food and in our environment, you know, and then also it causes so much stress, right? Then we're like sharing, you know, that kind of toxic behavior with one another as well. And so it brings me to the topic of consciousness, which I've heard you talk about both, you know, personally, but then also this group consciousness that we kind of all share in. And I know you've done some work now in understanding, better understanding metaphysics and the power that's sort of beyond the power that we can see. And I wonder how you think about how that plays into, you know, kind of the health and wellness of our society at large and the things that we find acceptable to do and to share with one another.
0: I've been fascinated in in this sort of, uh, the whole field of consciousness for as long as I can remember. In fact, I remember uh, as a child having these thoughts and I remember (laughs) remember standing, I I must've been about 10 years old or something. I remember standing in my mom and dad's house at the top of the back step, looking up at the sky, and I was apologising to God because I'd had my first, what you might call spiritual or metaphysical thoughts about what reality and consciousness is. I'd gone to a Catholic school. That particular school had taught very much the fire and brimstone so type of thing. And so I was apologising because I, was, I thought I was committing a sin because I'd had thoughts that everyone and everything... It's all part of the same essence, the same consciousness. And and we're all just variations of it, like, you know, like colours of a rainbow. Uh, Light shines through a raindrop and it sprinkles out and what we see is a rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. We are the rainbow of maybe consciousness. And I started to have these thoughts. I don't know where they came from, but I I must have been about 10 years old when it started to crystallise into something that really began to make sense. And I remember that. One of my strongest memories is the apology and say, but I am only ten, you know, or I'm only eleven or something. So so but <laughs> but but this is what I think. And I'm so I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Kind of thing. And so I've had the fascination all, all throughout my adult life. and and for that, what that has taught me, I think we're capable of more miracles than we ordinarily would expect in the conventional way we understand the world. I think there's possibilities for miraculous things, for really incredible things. For me, I've always thought of how do you best marry these two worlds in a way that's palatable for people? So one of the things that I've done in that book was pull together a lot of research on ESP, telepathy, pre-sentiment, things called telesomatic events. And these are when someone that you have a strong emotional bond with, something happens to them And you feel it somewhere in your own body, like it registers and you think, oh my God, something's happened. And they're called telesomatic events. And what these kind of things demonstrate is there is some sort of connection. Maybe maybe consciousness isn't produced by by the brain inside the skull as we tend to think in the mainstream. Because there's a lot of philosophical thought and writing about it actually consciousness is something out there. It just feels like it's in here. Because we've had a lifetime of experience of saying, well... If I hurt my finger, it feels like it's here. So the lifetime of experience tells us physically, practically that this is me. But maybe that which you are is everything. We're the rainbow, so to speak, of consciousness, the different colours and shades, but there's an infinite number of colours and shades. And for me, that explains why you have these phenomena like telesomatic events, but also in the modern world, we've researched this by connecting people to you know, EEG or even in MRI scanners. And what we find is if you put someone in an an MRI scanner or connect them to an EEG device and then put someone else in another room and give them a visual experience, then the brain of the other person reacts to that experience at exactly that moment. And here's the thing, if and only if they share some sort of emotional connection between them, it's still there if they don't know each other, but it's very difficult to see. But the correlation between the brain is very significant if they share an emotional connection. And again, that suggests that consciousness isn't just this thing inside your skull, but maybe you and me and everything, we just think we're a colour of the rainbow. Like Here's the rainbow, the red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. And the red's at one colour and the, the blue's over there, And the red shouts across the blue. How are you doing today, blue? Oh, I'm feeling pretty blue. You know, I'm feeling pretty low. How are you doing? I'm okay. Talk to yellow. Yellow is always really bright and cheery. And they all think that they're separate from each other. (laughs) But they're really just shades of the same light. And, And maybe we're all just shades of the same consciousness. And it just feels like we're separate from each other. And I think science and philosophy is going more in that direction now than it ever did. In the past and, I, and what's helped it is a large volume of, of peer-reviewed research with some very, very strong statistical evidence uh, behind it and to a lot of people that's still really out there woo-woo and they won't even touch it, they won't even look at the data but if you do and you, you start to come to the conclusion that, that maybe our, our, our standard model of what consciousness is isn't necessarily wrong, it's just not complete. We, there's a bit of tweaking we need to do. And that's what science does. We tweak, we tweak and we tweak until we find a better
1: solution. Did that lead you to your work on kindness? That is kind of a very tangible demonstration of how we are all parts of the same thing.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I've thought about this for years about the interconnectedness. And, and I've always asked myself, so what's the point then? If everything is all part of the same thing, you know, what's the point? and the answer always comes really strong to me the point is to be kind just be, just go through your life and just do what you can to assist to help to bring smiles to people's faces if we're all connected people still suffer despite you know despite that we're not all, not everyone's floating around in a cloud so do what you can to help other people right. it's it's always made so much sense to me that the point of it is to be kind the other thing is one of my greatest teachers is my mum. Because when I, when I was a child, my mum was going through postpartum depression. My mum was and still is an incredibly kind, selfless person who does anything to assist her family and, and anyone else. And I learned firsthand, not from my mum telling me, this is what you should do, but I learned from observation, from the experience of watching and learning from the kind of person my mum is and I remember our family always struggled financially when I I was growing up and I remember hearing my mum and dad arguing not arguing they were having a discussion coming up to Christmas time because my mum didn't have enough money to buy presents for myself and my my three sisters and my mum was so terribly upset and she was crying and i ran to my bed and burst into tears out of empathy for my mum but also secondly I couldn't I, did, I thought, I don't want anything. I don't really want anything for Christmas. I just want my mum to be happy and not to be upset. And despite all that, my mum had an extra pound or a dollar in her pocket. The first thing she would do is share it out with the family. And I remember one time when I was in mm. tears, just being in awe of how kind my mum is, thinking, I'm going to be a kind person one day. I'm going to be like my mum. And so I, I remember as a child deciding that I would like to be a kind person because I am so in awe of, despite the challenges and struggles we had, I'm so in awe of the type of person my mum is. And and so that and it making sense to me that if everything is connected and part of this one thing, then being kind is the most logical, sensible thing for me to do. And and, and so those two things together, both connected really, but, but seemingly separate things, were my big impetus for my work in kindness.
1: So is that something that you can build a pathway around? Because it feels like, you know, some people are more inclined. I mean, you made the decision very early on to kind of move forward and with your baseline being to produce kindness towards other people. I don't notice that that's everybody's go-to. And I wonder if it's something that you can really work on building pathways around. An example here in the office, there's a lot of type A, very smart people. And we moved from meetings where we were collaborating from saying, but to saying, yes, and, and just contextualizing, you know, the next thing that was going to be said was based on, right, or provoked by, inspired by the thing that was said before completely changes the nature of the discussion i know kind of the answer to this question because i'm taking your kindness your four-part kindness class right now but can you talk a little bit about how you can actually change your inclination in the world to lean towards kindness more
0: yeah well the more you do something and you have the the more you be kind for example and you have the experience of what that feels like the more you actually do it, it it becomes contagious within yourself. It's it's contagious out in the world, but it's also contagious. It builds within yourself because the experience that you have when you help someone, there's something deep inside of us that feels satisfying. And what happens then is the behaviour itself begins to train our neural pathways until you literally activate more so your kindness genes, for want of a better term. And we build these neural pathways so that the experience of kindness becomes something that we are drawn to and we we have more and more often. And then some of the old behaviour begins to fade away because kindness absolutely is trainable. It is absolutely teachable. And it's something that we, that we can learn because every baby has kind genes. Everyone is born kind, but we have different shades of call them kindness genes. In fact, the kind of, the gene that produces the main kindness hormone is one of the oldest in the human genome. It's about 500 million years old. There's lots of variations of it. There's little shades. Imagine it was pink in colour. Then it goes from dark pink to light pink. So there's little shades that determine a person's natural tendency to be kind given an opportunity staring you right in the face. So there is variations between us. But... Together with that is also people's life experience that also influence whether you're likely to help or not. So it becomes quite a, a mishmash of genes and experience, but everyone has that natural capacity to be kind. And, and the more you practice it, the more you build those neural pathways, and that becomes a habit, a, just a way of thinking. It just literally becomes a way of thinking and a way of being. It becomes automatic, like a habit.
1: And that changes your biology, right? Your cells resonate in a different way. You move in the world in a way that's different than if you're constantly focused on anger, frustration, fear.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, kindness has some real neurological and physiological effects. one, One of my favorite facts about kindness is kindness is physiologically the opposite of stress. I often say to audiences, if I'm speaking, whether it's a corporate audience or a public audience, and I'll say, what is the opposite of stress? And 99% of people will say it's peace or it's calm or it's relaxation, it's tranquility. But peace, calm, relaxation and tranquility, those are not the opposite of stress. Those represent the absence of stress. Physiologically speaking, the opposite of stress is kindness. In fact, let me say it another way. The opposite of the experience of stress, what that feels like, is the experience of kindness, what kindness feels like. And if you chart the physiological effects in the body of stress and the physiological effects of kindness or the experience of kindness, you'll find that they go in opposite directions. They have about the same strength, but it's like a seesaw. They go in opposite directions. And the experience of kindness physiologically neutralizes the experience of stress. So, you don't have to always go for the absence of it and, and try to relax when you feel stressed. Be kind or even think kindly. And you'll probably find that you'll have a more powerful, more rapid effect because you're producing the antidote physiologically to that previous experience. And that's one of my most amazing, favourite light bulb moments when I was writing one of my books on kindness. That light bulb moment of realising, my goodness, kindness is the opposite of stress. And I remember just falling back in my chair and and that realization, I I have to tell the world. I have to tell everyone about that now. And I've been telling everyone about it ever since.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it definitely works. I mean, we could go all the way back to the discussion about placebo. And I wonder if we put a placebo pill in the hands of doctors and said, this will make you kinder, what would happen?
0: Oh, I think it would. Mm. <laughs> I think it would make a lot of people. I think it would too. Kinda. Absolutely, well, that's an amazing that's an amazing idea.
1: <laughs> I have one more question to ask you. I had heard you talk about pets on another interview that you had done recently. Our family got a puppy about a year ago. I oh. do feel like it and we have we have two cats as well. And it is unbelievable the vibrations that they bring into the house which are a hundred percent positive yeah and i wonder what you think about that and think about having pets in your life for all of those yeah, out there I, who do
0: i i've got a wee girl eh, doggy her, her name is daisy wait till, i'll show you i can show you a photograph joe wait do you see this that's daisy
1: oh my god oh wait what kind of dog is it she's a bichon
0: a bichon freezy she looks like okay a, i have a relative a of like her teddy bear <laughs> she
1: looks like a wee teddy bear yeah. She, oh wait, I have Pete. Wait, I don't think he's going to be able to see this, is he? Wait, Now I'm sharing. Hold on. Okay. Yeah, that's Pete. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so cute. What, which breed is he? Uh, Cavalier <laughs> or cockapoo? He's a Catan. A Catan? Uh, no, ah. Catan de Toulier, which I think they're ah, related. Related, I yeah. just said that with a horrible accent. an really American <laughs> accent. Yeah. yeah. Well,
0: <laughs> you know, all animals bring not just an amazing feeling into your household, amazing vibe into your household, but they actually bring some amazing health-giving effects. In fact, do you know the the chances of a second heart attack within one year in someone who's already had a heart attack, the chances of another one within a year, if they have a dog, is 400% less. It's not amazing. And you'd be forgiven for assuming... That's amazing. ...that the reason for that is to do with the exercise that you get, but it actually isn't. It's partly to do with it because other larger scale studies show that people who have cats or rabbits or dogs or horses but who interact with animals that consider them as part of their family, the risk of heart attack and stroke is significantly lower than it is in the the general population. So that research on dogs about the 400% less it isn't to do with the exercise, it's partly. An amazing piece of research came out in a top, one of the highest ranked scientific journals in the world a few years ago. Front page of the journal, this edition, was a dog. And it was a study that monitored dog owners interacting lovingly, warmly and playfully with the dog for half an hour. And levels of what I call kindness hormones. These are the biological products of the experience of kindness, akin to stress hormones. You know, stress hormones are the biological products of the experience of stress. So you have the biological products of the experience of kindness. So I call them kindness hormones. Anyway, levels of the main kindness hormones increased at a level greater than 10% per minute. Not 10% in total. That would be impressive enough. 10% per minute was the rate increase over the 30 minutes. More than 300% increase in that key hormone level. Now, it turns out that that kindness hormone, also known as oxytocin, as well as being a reproductive hormone, it is also a cardioprotective hormone. And what cardioprotective means is it protects your cardiovascular system. As well as being involved in reproduction, it plays a significant role in maintaining the health of your blood vessels. It it helps to reduce your blood pressure. It also helps to keep your blood vessels clear of the precursors to heart attack and stroke, which are free radicals and inflammation. And so it isn't just the exercise that contributes to that fact that the chances of a second heart attack within a year in someone who who has already had one is 400% less. It's in large part due to the bond that you generate from the regular and loving, warm and playful interactions you have with the dog or cat or rabbit or horse or any other animal that we bond with consistently throughout the day that keeps squirting into our arteries, into our blood vessels, this hormone that cleans them and keeps them clean and fresh and keeps our blood pressure low. And that contributes to that amazing phenomena of of health. Just having an animal in your presence that you love and care for is extremely cardioprotective. It protects your cardiovascular system.
1: That must have blown your mind as an organic chemist working on heart disease medications that having a pet was another intervention that was that was very positive and and very productive, but with no downsides.
0: Absolutely. In fact, you know, I wish I'd known that when I was uh, when I was working in in cardiovascular R and D. Because you know another thing I came across in my research on kindness, was if you practice a kindness or compassion-based meditation, like metta, like the, the Buddhist technique metta, or, or as we call it in the West, loving kindness, where in a nutshell for people who are not familiar with it, you think of people in your life and for each person, you say something like, may you be happy and well and safe and may you feel at ease some words to that effect, there's, there's, there's variations, but roughly words to that effect. May you be happy and well and safe and may you feel at ease and, and repeat it over and over again for different people in your life. Research shows that that actually has a powerful impact on the cardiovascular system. In fact, one key inflammatory marker In the body that I remember working with when I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, it's one of the, it's called an inflammatory marker, think of it as as something that marks on a wall, How let's say if you want to see how tall you are as your child's growing up and you take a marker and you mark where they are so that becomes a marker of their height. So in the body you have markers of like inflammation that tell you how much inflammation you have. So this particular inflammatory marker I remember being very familiar with as ways to determine how good cardiovascular drugs were were that I was working on. And here we had a six week, 15 minutes a day of may you be happy and well and safe and may you feel like he's wishing kindness and compassion on people had a substantial lowering effect on that inflammatory marker. I remember when I was writing one of my books on kindness, I literally nearly fell off the chair looking at how much an effect that that had had. And I thought, wow, that is incredible. And all they did was think kind thoughts. They weren't out there being kind. They were actually closing their eyes, just thinking kindly about people. And it was having a profound effect on the health of the cardiovascular system. Isn't that I mean isn't that amazing?
1: It's really mind-blowing and what I love is that you also start that meditation by saying those things to yourself. Yeah. And absolutely. and to really producing like acknowledging like the love that you have for yourself as that piece of the rainbow that is integrated with all of the other pieces of the rainbow that you that you acknowledge all of them including your place in, you know, this kind happy space
0: Yeah it's it's affirming your own self-worth is that point that when we work on our own self-worth we have more love to give other people we have more to give the world if we have a a, a better sense of stability within ourselves so that meditation practice begins may I be happy and well and safe and may I feel at ease may I be happy and well and safe and may I feel at ease. And what that does over time is it builds that sense of stability within yourself, that sense of background self-worth, that you know you're worthy and you're you're valuable and that you matter just as much as other people. So we start with ourselves and then we pass that sentiment out to people that we care about, people that we don't even know, or even people that we find challenging. In our lives, but it's that repetition of the sentiment that we're building, and a phenomenally because of how it feels, and here it brings me back to the kindness, the experience of kindness is opposite from the experience of stress. The experience of stress can increase inflammation in the blood vessels and in the immune system. Whereas the experience of kindness, just sitting with your eyes closed, may you be happy and well and safe, and may you feel it's even for people you have challenges with is the opposite of stress because it it helps to reduce inflammation. So stress can increase inflammation and the experience of kindness, even in your mind, even just saying some words towards people can have the opposite effect. And I, I think these kind of things, I'm very passionate about getting these ideas out into the world because the more people that understand that kindness is the opposite of stress, I think the more we're going to see kindness Finding its way into corporate boardrooms, finding its way into the general public, into, you know, hospitals. Not that it's not there already, but just finding its way in different ways, in different avenues, in different, coming from different directions and finding more of this in the world. Because I think the world can always do with more kindness.
1: Yeah. No, I love it so much. I mean, really, maybe you can challenge your community to, we should all be doing that when we sip our cup of coffee or a cup of tea every morning. And just if we were sitting there also, you know, acknowledging ourselves and those who we love and those who maybe we take issue with, if we could be that compassionate and kind to, to everyone, it would, I can't even imagine the dramatic change it would make. Oh, I mm. really love that advice. No, thank you. Well, I want to thank you very much for spending time with me today. I've loved this conversation. I feel like it's tip of the iceberg, but I really wanted to make more people aware of your work. I think it's incredible. I think your books are amazing. Your advice is amazing. You have a website and you're on Twitter and Instagram as well, but I do hope people follow you. Thank you very much for spending time with me today.
0: Oh, thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. David Hamilton. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. May you be happy and well and safe. And may you feel at ease. Have a great day.